Hello, and welcome to the Church Newtown Square podcast. If we can serve you in any way, or if you'd like to learn more about our church family or the Acts 29 network, please visit us at churchnsq.org. That's C-H-V-R-C-H-N-S-Q.org. And now, let's listen in to today's teaching. Well, uh, I don't know about you, but... Whenever I spend time with someone who just kind of gets under my skin, I kind of want to get away from them as much as possible. None of you here get under my skin. Uh, fear not, it's none of you. But uh, I don't know, you know, the, spending time with people that you can think of right now who just get under your skin. Now, uh, it's kind of like a splinter. When we think about being irritated, anybody, you know what being irritated is? It's like when you get that tiny little splinter in your skin somewhere. And it just kind of, you feel it and gets red and irritated. And then all of a sudden, you just kind of want to get it out. That irritation, that getting under your skin, that's what we talk about when things get under our skin. Kids can get under our skin, right? You know, just, ah, we love them. Uh, Spouses can get under our skin, right? Our best friends even can get under our skin. There are things about one another that irritate us. But we don't seek to spend all of our time away from them. If they're our friends, if they're our kids... Uh, it's, not, it's not that they don't have uh, irritations that bother us that will never go away. It's just these little things once in a while. Spending time sometimes with someone who is uh, constantly getting under your skin, though, that's a whole other story. There are some people that just don't, they just don't understand and they don't care. Uh, and you don't really go out of your way to spend time with them because they irritate you to no end. Well, in a very small way, this might be a, a way to think about Uh, the irritating relationship between a holy God and an irritating relationship with those who have abandoned that God. That that God and his relationship with Israel, as we go through the book of Isaiah, and the book of Isaiah is the promise of good news, these people have abandoned their creator. They've abandoned their king. They've turned their back. They have irritated God so much so over time that God has said, look, I want, to, I want to show you what it's like to live under another ruler, to live under another king. And as we've been studying the book of Isaiah, if you're visiting with us here for the first time, we've been looking through the book thematically uh, as a way to see uh, how God comes and, and is king to his people. That he is the king not only of Israel, but he's also the king of the world. That he's an international king, that he's a saving king. And that this king, this king, this God of Israel sends messengers. He sends agents of his good news and of his lordship to the world. And he does that through the Davidic king, the promised kings who were supposed to rule faithfully with faith over Israel. Uh, He sends it in terms of those who would come and be uh, workers of justice. There was one who would come and be a savior, a messiah. And this morning we're going to look at the one who was going to be anointed. Now the book of Isaiah starts gloomy and ends sunshiny. It's all glory and sunshine at the end, but it's gloom and despair at the beginning. And in the course of the book, God sends messengers through his prophets to Israel to proclaim good news. And Isaiah is a proclaimer of good news. The whole of the book is about the good news of God's love. Because despite the irritation, God loves these people anyway. And he has promised them good. I mean, who does that? Who promises good to someone who abandons you, someone who irritates you to no one. Worse than that, someone who turns their back on you. Who promises good to those who constantly turn their back on you? 
Not only did God promise these people good, but he followed through on his promises, and he fulfilled what he said he would do for them. And so this morning, our passage points us to this agent of God, this messenger of good news, the agent of the king of Israel, the king of the world, the king of Zion. Uh, And he would be anointed, as we've read, with a message. He is sent with a message. He's tasked, in fact, with a specific mission, and the result of which would be kind of a real rags-to-riches story. We love those stories, right? We love stories of those who have uh, been down and out and those who have uh, been uh, under the oppression of either poverty or of some other uh, uh, despot, uh, dictator, some, something that shows the rescuing of someone in need of help. Uh, but this is just more about than restored fortunes. This isn't like a rag-to-riches story, so therefore we can trust God to you know, pull us up out of the, the poverty and, and, and into riches. This is about restored relationship with God. It is primarily about a restored relationship with God. And not only God's people will be restored, but all of creation will be restored. God's people, God's creation rescued and restored. In Isaiah 61... We're not going to see the whole uh, way in which Isaiah lays this promise out, but uh, in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 61, we're going to spend some time looking at the anointed one and what his mission was. And and this is going to be our focus this morning because you could read the rest of this chapter and the rest of uh, this section on your own. But then what Isaiah will do is he'll move through and he'll show that shame is going to be replaced with with honor. That this anointed one, he's going to come and he's going to free his people, but then he's going to replace their shame with honor. And then he's going to be committed to them. He's going to say, I have an everlasting covenant that will last with you. I've not given up on you. And then he's going to repeat again in verses 10 through 11 the power of his saving arm, that he is a God that saves And he's going to replace in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, their desolation with delight. He's going to repeat this theme over and over again. And that the way in which God is going to accomplish this is that there's going to be intercessors, prayers, tireless people who will pray. And one in particular who will pray for his people. And so what Isaiah is trying to do at this point in the book is he's trying to get the people of Israel who, in reading this in real time, are going to be reminded that there is a Messiah There's one who is going to come, a Mashiach, a Savior, an anointed one, that will rescue them out of their misery, rescue them out of the exile, and that we are to have such an admiration for this Messiah that we would gladly exert ourselves, that Israel would gladly exert themselves in whatever the Lord calls them to do, which is to be agents of peace in the world. If there's anything that I want you to leave this morning remembering, it's this, that There is a God. Isaiah wants Israel, the people of Israel, the people of Judah, he wants us to remember this, that the God who is willing and eager to send a rescuer has sent a son, that God is willing and eager to send a rescuer for his people. And there is a son who was and is still willing and eager to rescue. A God who's willing to send and a son who is willing to be sent. If you want to take notes and you want to write an outline, here it is, right? We're going to look at three things. One, marked for mission. Marked for mission. This anointed one was marked for mission. In fact, that's what anointed means. Set apart, marked. Two, who are the people in need of rescue? There were people in need of rescuing. So there was one who is marked for a mission. There are people in need of rescuing. And finally, three, a rescued and righteous people. There is going to be and is a rescued 
and righteous people. Look with me at verse 1. First marked for a mission. Isaiah says, uh, he writes, The Spirit of the Lord God is on me. The Spirit of the Lord God is on me. If you were to read before this and all through the book, you're going to see a voice that changes from first person speaking for God. There's a voice of Isaiah speaking. Now someone else is speaking. There is a, a voice here. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Ruach Adonai Yahweh. The Spirit of the Lord God is on me. The Lord God of Israel, the King of Israel, He is on me. His Spirit is on me. Why? Because the Lord, Yahweh, has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. This is, if you just want to make a left-hand turn really quick, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. This is the aforementioned voice of the Messiah. He's been pointed to, and now he's speaking in chapter 61, 11-2. We're familiar with this uh, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. It's the promise of the offspring of David, the Davidic king. He will have the spirit of the Lord. Here's the same word, that, that ruach of, of the Lord God. He will have the spirit. And then Isaiah chapter 42, again, he's mentioned in 42 verse 1. God is speaking. This is my servant, my servant. I strengthen him. This is my chosen one. I delight in him. I have put my spirit on him. There's a promise of one to come, and then there's God saying, here he is, and then now he is speaking. He's saying, I have been anointed to bring good news. It can't be God, as it is in chapter 59 or 42, as we just read. It can't be Isaiah, the prophet here, uh, because Isaiah doesn't promise that he's the one to save or to have the spirit of the Lord. This is the one promised to come, to save, Yahweh's servant, the Messiah. In context, uh, the liberty that is going to be proclaimed, the good news to the poor, this word poor here is actually, uh, it's not uh, one in terms of economic poverty. It is one who is postured in such a way that they are in great need. They're beggarly, they're low, they're utterly helpless. And so the good news is not to someone whose checking account is fairly low at the moment. It is one who is prostrate and utterly uh, helpless to help themselves, that there's going to be good news to the poor. And in context, the Babylonians are coming. The Assyrians have taken the northern kingdom of Israel. Now Judah is being told by God that they're going to be spared the Assyrian captivity, but the Babylonians are going to come. And it's because they've abandoned God and not trusted God. And so at some point, Israel, Judah, the southern kingdom, is reading this in exile, and they're being reminded of the fact that God is going to send good news. Uh, and so the good news is that they will be released from Babylonian exile eventually. They will come back to the land. But this is not speaking of just that horizon. There's a further horizon. As they, as they move forward in history, they're looking at a future horizon of one who would come. And it is the fulfillment of all of these promise, promises, and it is, in fact, a Messiah, a Savior, a King. If you'll turn with me really quickly, make a right-hand turn to Luke chapter 4. And it is really easy. Some of you are like, well, this is, this is not that hard. This is Jesus. That's right. It's not difficult to understand. This is the passage that speaks of Jesus. How do we know that? Because Jesus himself opens up to this passage, Isaiah 61, and says, this is about me. It's fulfilled today. In fact, let's read really quickly. Verse uh, 16. 
Jesus is back at his hometown, and he goes to synagogue as he usually does, and they open up a scroll, and what they would do is they would give an opportunity for any teacher or rabbi or even young man at the end of the service to open up a scroll, read it, and give any sort of interpretation. They could teach about it. They could say whatever they want to about it. So Jesus calls for this role, and it says in verse 17 that the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Jesus would have read this. He would have said, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that's where he stops. He doesn't read the rest. The scroll is rolled up and Luke says it's put away. And Jesus says, today, as I've read this to you in real time, this passage is fulfilled. It's finished. It's done. It's accomplished. In fact, the one that Isaiah was talking about, what he's saying is, is Yahweh has sent his anointed messenger. His spirit is on me. And all of the hearers there would have understood that what Jesus was saying there was essentially that the promise that God would send his own spirit upon a savior, the next king of Israel, the one who would be the freer of the people under exile, under reign of another empire, it's me. It's me. It's fulfilled. It's done. It's finished. I'm here. To which they would respond, this is incredible. And they would lift him up on their shoulders and they say, Jesus, Jesus. Only that's not what happens. What they do is they get extremely angry at him. They, They look at him and they're like, who are you to say that you are the Mashiach. You're just a carpenter. You're from Nazareth. You're, from, you're one of us. We know your dad. We know your family. You're an arrogant, pretentious little man. And so they take him out to the cliff and they try to throw him off it. I've been to the cliff. It's a trash heap. It's outside of Nazareth. Nazareth is a poor town. They take him out to the cliff and there it is. And it's a, it's a precipitous drop. And they can't do it because it was not Jesus' time yet. You would think that the people waiting for a savior would be like, all right, this is fulfilled, let's do it. But no, they reject him. In fact, they try to kill him. And Luke points us to the reality that Jesus' ministry, as he points out, is what we would know as the end of days. It is the marking of what God promised that in the latter days, the sense that the day has been fulfilled when the savior would come and there's no more chapters in the book save the day of judgment. The day that has come is the day of salvation. In the latter days, God's salvation would come. He is the anointed one. He is marked for a mission. God is willing to send, and he has sent his son, Jesus says. What has Jesus, being the fulfillment of this promise, what is he telling the people in Nazareth? He's telling them that I'm here to bring the promised good news. Because look with what he says in Isaiah 61. Again, the spirit of the Lord is on me because, because the Lord has anointed me. Jesus hasn't anointed himself. The Lord has anointed him. And he has anointed him to bring good news to those who are in need of being lifted up. In fact, Luke's usage of the verb creo is the Greek word Christos, which means in Greek, anointed one. He is the one anointed by God. It is the language that Luke pulls from the Hebrew text and and says this is the same one. 
This is the same one that was promised in Isaiah. And as Jesus read this, he is the one that you should look to. In fact, Luke's theme all through Luke and Acts is, and once you get into the Acts, you'll see the Spirit of the Lord. That's where Pentecost is recorded. That's the anointing of the church to go and be commissioned. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Just as Christ was sent, so also the disciples are sent. And how are they sent? They're sent with the start of an anointing, a marking out, that the Spirit of the Lord falls upon his church, just like the oil would fall upon the king and the priest anointed to do a good work. God is willing and he's eager to send a rescuer. And in Jesus Christ, we see that God has sent one who is willing and eager to rescue. What does that rescue mission look like too? He's there. The mission is to rescue a people who are in need of rescuing. Uh, I'm a, I'm an, I like movies. Uh, has anybody familiar with The Great Escape? The Great Escape is an older movie. Okay, one hand. Great. I see that one hand. The Great Escape is about um, uh, prisoners of war in Nazi Germany trying to get out of their prison camp. And they just kind of get caught and caught and caught over and again. They're digging tunnels. It's a great movie. Uh, but it, this is not the great escape. This is not the promise of God saying, hey, you're going to get out of prison camp. We just celebrated Veterans Day, and you might notice that beside a lot of our flags are the flags of the prisoners of war, POWs, those who have been held in captive enemy territory that are in need of rescue. This is the rescuing that is needed. Movies like The Covenant or Kandahar, these, these movies that I like to watch where there are uh, scenes of heroism in the midst of wickedness and evil. Or if you're a reader and you've read Lord of the Rings, you recognize or remember uh, Samwise Gamgee mustering up courage to rescue Frodo from the captors. It, this is something that he knows he must do and he has to do, and he doesn't know if he has it in him to do it. But we read about his heroic adventures, and he saves Frodo. And Frodo doesn't even know because he's out cold, wrapped in wrapped in string that he can't get out of, he's, he's helpless. In the same way, God is sending a rescuer to rescue those who cannot save themselves. Which leads me to stop and ask you a question. Do you right now, I'm going to ask you, do you feel like, even right now, you're in need of rescue? Do you feel like you're in need of rescue? Or do you, or do you have this sense that you've got things pretty figured out? Life's pretty good. Finances are good. My job is good. My health is good. Spiritually, I'm doing okay. I don't really need much help right now. You feel like before God, you, you're pretty good, that if you were to stand before him, you'd have a fairly good list of things that you could say, hey, I, I ought to pass the test. You have a sense of comfort and security and the fact that you don't really need rescuing. You don't, you're not really in prison. You're not like these people who are in need of rescuing. You, you're not like them. Well, let's see if we are like them or not. What has God sent this anointed one to do? Look at verse one again. He has sent me to heal, to heal the brokenhearted, to bind up the brokenhearted. That is to mend wounds. When, when you have a cut on your skin, you, you want to suture it. You want to clean it. You want to mend it. That's the same thing, to, to heal the brokenhearted. The, those who are weary and brokenhearted, to heal them, something has broken in their heart. They, they need to be mended. Here he says, I've been sent to not only do that, but to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom or release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Here's a reference back to Leviticus 25 where God promised that every 
50 years, there would be a year of jubilee where if you sold your land because you had to pay off debt, if you were an indentured slave, if you had lost land because of famine, that you would be restored all of those things, that God provided a time when everything would be restored back to those who were impoverished for lack of better uh, circumstances. And then even there would be a, an entire year where they, God would say, take the year off. Don't do any farming. You have enough produce. It's freedom. It's jubilee. It is a year. In fact, it was proclaimed in Leviticus 25.10 that they were to proclaim liberty throughout the land the whole year. For an entire year, it was their job to say, we are free. God is our Savior. He has provided for us. The land was given time to restore. Slaves were released. This is the language that God is saying here, the anointed one is going to come, and that is going to be a reality for these people. In fact, Luke chapter 2, verse 10 says, I bring you the angels good news of great joy. That will be for all of the people. Here, the freedom or the release to the prisoners is, is the language of prisoners of war. The, the Israelites and, the, and, and Judah would be prisoners of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. The Babylonians would come in and they would conquer, and then they would ship them out. And then they would spread them all through the land, and they would not have their land anymore. They would not be able to come back and take over their land. The language of prisoners being released is one of their eyes being opened. I have a, I have a friend who uh, is from Newtown Square, and I, I gave him a ride one afternoon because he was down by Subaru, uh, the Rafferty Subaru, and it looked like he was with his son and he needed a ride. Turns out this man it was a, uh, a recovering addict. Uh, in need of the gospel, and you know, as as we were talking, he's like, he's like, ah, it, it doesn't get long before somebody asks me, "What do you do? Why are you picking us up?" And I was like, "Well, I'm picking you up because I thought you needed a ride." But as to what I do, I'm a pastor, and he's like, "Oh, he's like, uh, what kind?" I'm like, uh, "I just, it's a non-denominational church just down the road." He's like, "Well, I'm Jewish." I was like, "We're friends. It's fine. It's okay. Jesus was Jewish, you know. Like, it's fine. It's all good." But over the course of our conversation, I began to get to know him, and uh, he eventually trusted Christ, but he also went to prison for the crimes that he committed. And so right now, he's in central Pennsylvania, and just in the last week, I had a conversation with him, and we were talking, and I asked him, I said, hey, I was like, how are you doing with kind of like the seasons changing? Like, does it get, does it get dark, like sooner in the prison? And he's like, actually, I don't ever see the sun, really. He's like, I'm in prison, and there's not much sunlight in here. I don't see it all that often, so I don't, it doesn't really affect me. Time is time. To which it sunk into my brain. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's what the text that I've been studying says, that when he steps out into the sunlight, he has not seen sun. It, this is what the language is. It is a prisoner who is in a dungeon without any sense of sunlight, comes out for the first time and sees the blinding light of the sun. Any light whatsoever would be blinding. And this is what is proclaimed, that the prisoners who are in dungeons, who cannot see, they are opened up to the light of this good news. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor is what Jesus stopped at. The Lord's grace. He's, this time of season, this Lord's favor is upon the people. And this is where Jesus stops. And Jesus stops because he knows that in terms of the redemptive history, there is one more chapter, which is the vengeance of God. It is, is the due justice for all that have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yet, Jesus was not there to exact vengeance. What was he there to do? To extend grace. Today, today, if you hear his voice, is the day of salvation. It is a grace period. 
You're familiar with credit cards? Do you know what a 30-day grace period is? You spend money, and the bank kindly says, we'll give you 30 days to pay it off. You have 30 days of grace. But on that 31st day, at an APY annual percentage yield of 20.17%, we're going to need that money right away. But if you want to defer your payments, that's fine too. Just pay us a little extra. And over the course of three years, if you don't pay the minimum payment, you're going to owe this much. Oh, thank you very much. It, it's, it's why you don't, if for those of you who have the privilege of buying a home, it's why you don't look at the bottom line of what you actually pay for your home because the interest rate accrues. In fact, they just, they're kind to you and they say, just don't look at that number. Sign here. Here's what you pay per month. Don't think about what you're actually paying. Grace periods are a favor from the bank. It is, a, it is a period of time in which the interest being charged against your account is not called for. And in the same way, God is patient with us. And unlike the bank, however, God's favor towards us is that he promises to pay our debt should we trust him for it. That the sin that accumulates against our debt, the debt that we owe, is paid by God. He is the lender and he will also pay the debt. God's vengeance will come, but Jesus stops and says that day is not yet. That this anointed one who comes to rescue those who are in need of rescuing. What kind of people are there? Let's go down the list and see if any of us are familiar with this. He has sent me, the anointed one, to comfort all who mourn. Do you mourn? Are you sad? Do you grieve the love? Did you grieve the loss of a loved one? Do you grieve all that goes on in the world? Do you grieve the hardship? Do you grieve? Do you need comfort? Are you like people who are in need of comfort? He comes to provide for those who mourn in Zion. This is specifically to Israel that their temple, their city, their glory was taken away. Those who are mourning, they, they miss Jerusalem. That's what Zion is. Zion is the city of God. It is Jerusalem. It is the dwelling of God. In Isaiah, it is both the people of God and the city of God. They are one. It is a picture of the people of God who are his, and yet they are mourning. This first verb, provide, points to a decision of God. He has decided to reveal his heart. He wants to provide. It is an initiative of God. And then the second verb, to give them a crown is his act. It is both his decision and his action. What does he give them? He gives them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. That word ashes is, if you're familiar with sitting in ashes and grieving, if you're familiar with Job, and Job is a long book, and you just know that he's scraping boils off and he's dumping ashes on him, that was a way to, to grieve. It's, I don't get that, actually, honestly. I read that, I'm like, why would you dump ashes on yourself? I don't know. But it is a way of communicating outwardly in internal grief. And what Isaiah says is this anointed one is going to come and he's going to replace that outward grief. He's going to decide to send and to give a crown of beauty. He's going to have festive oil to give them a priestly fragrance that instead of mourning, that they're going to have splendid clothes instead of despair. That word despair there is what we would use as that wick that is smoldering, that's smoking, it's it's embers in the fire that are almost ready to go out. All it needs is just a little bit more time and it will go out. 
Are you in despair? Are you barely lit with fire for God? Are you in despair of your circumstances? Are you grieving? Are you mourning? Mourning at your own sin? Mourning at the world around you? Do you doubt God's goodness? Do you think that he has forgotten you? Do you feel alone? Do you wonder if God is ever going to restore things in this world? Which begs the question, why are these people poor? Why, why are they poor? Why are they brokenhearted? In context, the reason why we get to this point, the reason why God has to send a rescuer is because they've abandoned him. We repeat it over and over again in chapter 1. You have abandoned me. I have rescued you. I have loved you. I've given everything that you need. I love you, and yet you can constantly turn your back on me. And this is what sin does. Sin wrecks and destroys relationships. Our relationship with God is destroyed by sin. And that sin started in our great-great-great-great-grandfather, Adam, who rebelled against God, who decided to do his own thing, and all of his offspring now are under the slavery of sin. We have been conquered by sin and death. And the one who is behind that is that little serpent Satan, that little slithery, slimy dirt ball. He comes in and he wrecked humanity because he told them a lie. He said, you can't, can you really depend on God? Did God, is God, isn't he holding out on you? Adam, Eve, isn't, don't you want to be like him? Their answer was like, yeah, that kind of makes sense. And from that point on, all of humanity has been under the fall. Which of these areas do you hear and you're in need of the ministry of Jesus? Where, where do you say, you know what, I wish God would come and do that for me. I wonder if he's willing. There is a God who's willing to send. And there's a son who is willing to be sent and has come, and he is eager to rescue. What are these people in need of rescuing? What will they be like? What is the point of rescuing them out of these dungeons that they themselves have got them into, but all of humanity, even the Assyrians and the Babylonians, they need to rescue? Because again, remember, God is king of not only Israel, but he's also king of the world. Finally, a rescued and righteous people. Look at verse 3. These people whom the anointed one was sent to bring good news, the gospel, the good news, who Jesus says, I am the fulfillment of this good news. I am the one who will come and I will comfort, I will provide, I will give. I will provide you a full, splendid display of clothing. You will smell good, you will look good, and you will have life. They will be called, this is what's called the prophetic perfect. It is speaking in the sense that it has already been done. It has not yet been done, but it is as good as done. There's no chance of changing. This language here is they will be called. In other words, not might be called, perhaps will be called. It's like you will be called what? Righteous trees. There's a joke in this because the word for trees is the Hebrew word for oaks, and the oaks are the trees in which they would worship other gods and sacrifice their children and do lewd acts of sexual worship underneath the oaks in the hills. And God says, rather than these unrighteous oaks, you will be righteous trees, righteous oaks. Planted by the Lord to glorify him. You will be planted 
God's people will have a new nature and they will have new potencies. They will no longer be unrighteous like the oaks used in chapter 1, verse 29, or chapter 57, 5, which was the connection to false religion, but you will be rightly planted trees. Remember our study in Psalms, everybody? Remember we studied the Psalms this summer? Everybody's like, summer? I forgot about that. Psalm number one. What's Psalm number one? Blessed is the man who walks not in the way of the wicked, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, nor stands in the way of sinners, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on the law he meditates on it day and night, and as a result, he will be what? He will be like a what? Tree planted by streams of living water, the Holy Spirit, the one who brings life. Trees, out of a stump that gets cut, a branch will come out, and out of the root of that will come a big tree, and a big tree will bear tons of fruit, and they will be a people deeply rooted in the Lord, and the Lord will plant them. He will make them righteous trees, and it is the Lord who does it, and it will be to his glory. And there is a tree that was planted, and it grew, and it grew into a strong tree, and it was strong enough where it was cut down and it was hewn into planks. And that tree that was grown and it was solid and maybe it was an oak, maybe it was not, but it was solid and it was hewn into planks and then it was used as a method of torture. And that tree that was once growing and it was cut down and hewed into planks was stood upright outside of Zion. And upon that tree, an anointed messenger of God, who was the one that proclaimed good news, on that tree, the righteous anointed one hung. And he gave his life so that others might live. You see, the tree, the cross, cancels all of our debts. Cancels your debt. The grace period starts at the cross. It is... The cross doesn't save us. The cross pays our debt. Christ saves us. His life saves us. His righteousness that he lived is now your righteousness. You see, God's people are not righteous because of their own works. They're righteous because of the anointed messenger who brought good news. Good news, I've paid your debt. Now my righteousness is yours. You are righteous trees because I, the righteous one, hung on a tree, paid your debt, and now you are righteous. You are rescued and you are righteous. There's no more debt. Who would do such a thing? Why would God do such a thing? Mike McKinley says this in his book called Friendship with God, which, by the way, if you are struggling, really struggling with whether or not God loves you, wants to be your friend, I have a copy of this book. I would be glad to give it to you. I have a few copies. Not if you're just like, if you're really struggling, I would love to give it to you because it's been helpful for me. Just ask me and I'll give you a copy. But here's what Mike McKinley says. If you look at what Jesus, this anointed one, was willing to give up and what he was willing to endure and what he does now for the sake of his people, you can only conclude that he must place the highest value John Owen summarizes it in this way that 
Jesus parted with the greatest glory and he underwent the greatest misery. He does the greatest works there ever were because he loves his spouse, his people. He loves and values those who trust him. Do you trust him? Do you see him as the one who's come to rescue you? Do you need rescuing? If you don't need rescuing, then you don't need Jesus. You're, you're going to be just fine if you don't need rescuing. But the scriptures are very clear that we all need rescuing. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the free gift of God, grace that is given to us, is given to us in Jesus. Because there is a God who is willing and eager to send. And there is a son who is and was anointed to be sent and was willing and eager to rescue. The Spirit of the Lord of God is upon me, Jesus says, because he has marked me for mission to rescue people. And now, those people who are righteous and rescued, we who trust Christ have been given the same commission. Jesus said, stay here, guys, the ones that he was training, until the Holy Spirit is sent. Because I'm going to go be with the Father, and I'm going to send a helper for you. And he is going to anoint you, and I want you to go. Make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey all that I have commanded you and taught you, and I will be with you to the very end of the age. And Jesus anointed his church. He sent the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And from that point on, it's not just at Pentecost, but when we believe, we are marked and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and we live a life that has a heart for those who are just like us, blinded, in prison, in need of rescue. And he's commissioned us to be righteous and to live in such a way. And because we have his righteousness, though we fail to do all that God has asked us to do, we need not fear because Jesus Christ has accomplished all of that for us. Because he was the anointed one that was sent by a God who was willing and eager to send a rescuer. And we have one who has come and rescued us and given us his righteousness. And not only that, he has anointed us and clothed us with the splendor that at the end of the age, you would be, as C.S. Lewis says, tempted to worship. That's good news, isn't it? That is what Isaiah proclaims. That is what Christ proclaimed. That is what we proclaim. The sermon you've just listened to is a presentation of Church Newtown Square. To find out more about our church, check out churchnsq.org. That's C-H-V-R-C-H-N-S-Q.org. You are welcome to copy and distribute this sermon to others as long as you do not do it for commercial purposes or alter, transform, or build upon this talk in any way.